Welcome to Outside the Music Box. I'm Emma Williams. And I'm Chloe Prendergast. We're so glad you've joined us today. We're both violinists based in the Netherlands and have created this podcast in our search to find fun new ways to share and talk about music we love. Each episode, we explore a different piece of music through the eyes of a guest musician. Our goal is that you don't have to be a total music nerd to enjoy this podcast, so we put little explanations of technical terms, some background info, and excerpts of the music we're talking about throughout the episode. If we miss anything, though, definitely let us know and we'll clarify in future episodes. We've also linked some Spotify playlists in the show notes with all the music we talk about so you can enjoy for your own listening pleasure. Today's guest is percussionist Mariana Soroka, who we both know from our musical world in The Hague. She wasn't able to narrow her choice down to one piece, so she's brought in four very different and interesting pieces that have helped shape her life. A 19th century Russian opera, a big band piece from the 60s, a contemporary jazz trio, and some minimalist music from Steve Reich. Quick disclaimer, Mariana's audio is a bit crackly for this episode, unfortunately. Recording these interviews over the internet presents lots of fun challenges, and we've done our best to make her sound as clear as possible, but it's still a little distorted sometimes, so sorry about that. This show is listener-supported, so, dear listener, please consider donating to help us keep this podcast running and to pay our friend Joanna Neuschatz for her wonderful work she does helping us editing. You can donate what you feel this podcast is worth to you in relation to what you have. Just head to paypal.me forward slash musicboxconcerts, which we'll also link in the show notes. Thanks for joining us and enjoy our chat with Mariana Soroka. Thanks for joining us. Hi, girls. Thanks for the invitation. So on this podcast, we actually get our guests to introduce themselves. So do you mind introducing yourself for everyone? Sure. So my name is Mariana Soroka, and I'm a percussionist. Uh, I'm originally from from Poland, but I've been based in the Netherlands for the past uh, few years. And I work here in, um, in a variety of music fields, actually. I play uh, contemporary music, which means music written by composers who are still alive, contemporary composers. I play uh, early music as well, which is kind of the opposite. <laughs> so, <laughs> so very it's, dead people. <laughs> very dead people. Uh, right. So in my in my case, it's mostly music from the Baroque period and Renaissance period, and um, world music as well. So music that is inspired by like traditional music from different places in the world and all kinds of uh, fusion projects which you know combine collaborating with uh, visual artists dancers and so on so that's more or less what I do so cool <laughs> we're a little bit in awe of what you do <laughs> you get kind of the best of all worlds yeah well you know that was the idea I guess when I <laughs> <laughs> When I when I started, well, not when I started the percussion, but when I really got into it, I was like, wow, the the variety of instruments, of style, this is something that I really like and I really enjoy. So I'm, I'm really happy that I can actually do it professionally. I guess as a percussionist, you like then do get so much variety within each of those as well. 
Yeah, the, actually, every project is just completely different from what I've done before. Always, you know, especially if you work with uh, yeah with composers and with with music that is being written right now. It's just you know most of the time you can't compare it to anything that you've done already. So that's that's pretty cool. It's challenging, but it's uh, that's the inspiring part, you know. Yeah, you yeah. never get bored. No, no, <laughs> not yet. <laughs> um. And today you've brought in a few different pieces that you said you couldn't narrow it down between. Yes. <laughs> and now we understand why. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which I think is great. Um, so which one do you want to start with? Um, that's a good question. Maybe we can start kind of chronologically. So with, uh, with Mussorgsky, with Boris Godunov. Great. Um, can you tell us why you brought that piece the first time you ran into it, heard it, played it? Sure. So... Um, this is actually very sentimental because the first time I I heard it and I was part of it because that that was the thing that it was the first time that I was uh, part of some big uh, stage production it was about uh, twenty years ago when I was around ten or eleven I guess and I was a I was a, um, a member of a children's choir and uh, a choir that used to collaborate with with the opera house in my in my hometown in Poznań. So we would do some performances that whenever they needed some some uh, some children's choir, they, w- they would call us. And Boris Godunov was one of the things that we did. Uh, and it, I think it was the one of the first things that I did with them on stage. So, you know, I mean, for a kid, it was such a big experience to be in the theater and to be dressed in all these like, costumes because we are these kind of street kids. So all these red clothes and just, you know, hanging in a the theater and being in the backstage and... You know, all this all this context was just amazing, and then there was also the music, which was, uh, I mean, still until now, I think it's one of my favorite uh, operas. I guess it has to do with the fact that I also I just really love uh, Russian Orthodox music, choir music, and um, well, if you ask me, it's kind of you can hear it a little bit in the in the in the parts there in the opera. So there's this kind of sentimental angle to it, and also just the the fact that I think it's a it's a great piece. It's a very weird piece in a way because if you think of uh, 19th century opera you think about uh, all the italian operas right mm. and this is like a very specific very russian piece of music so yeah i just I, I really love it you know and all the choir parts are just amazing for some quick background modest Mussorgsky was a russian composer who lived from 1839 to 1881 Fun fact, we just found out that his last name comes from a Greek word meaning music maker, and his lineage can be traced back to a legendary 9th century founder of the Russian state. Many of his works were inspired by Russian history and folklore. The opera that we're talking about today, Boris Godunov, is his only opera and is about the 16th century Russian Tsar, Boris Godunov. It's a three and a half hour opera. If you're interested, you can watch the whole thing on YouTube. But for now, here is a bit of the prologue. So did you grow up singing in a choir for your like whole childhood? Yeah, I think I started when I was about yeah, 9, 10 and uh, kept singing until I finished high school. So yeah, 
it was a big part of my education and I loved it. Yeah, I mean, being in a choir is one of the best things ever. Right? Yeah, yeah. that's what I think. That was basically the same time period as you, Emma, right? Yeah. I mean, you kept going longer than even when you finished high school, but... Yeah, but yeah, the whole of my upbringing was also just like singing in choirs all the time. And it also like gives you so many more opportunities that you never thought you would get. I feel like especially children's choirs then get like popped into these projects that are so seemingly random and... um yeah, you get to like do all this like really adult stuff. <laughs> exactly. Being in a professional opera at age 10 is like a really big deal. Yeah. yeah I mean, okay, let's also, let's face it, it was like the, the, the whole part that we sang was maybe 10 minutes in total and the opera is probably more than three hours long. So, you know, it was a very, very tiny part. <laughs> and I think we would be there in the beginning and in the, in the prologue, we had to be on stage and we had to kind of act a little bit. So that was also a fun part. And then we had, I don't know, more than two hours of just being in the theater and doing whatever, waiting for the moment to come in and to sing, which was, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was very, very little. But still, you know, we were there. We were part of the performance and uh, they wouldn't go on without us. So that was kind of cool. Exactly. <laughs> know what the story of the opera was about like were you aware of what was happening or were you just kind of like this is my thing yeah I think we, we were we were pretty pretty ignorant at the time I mean we, we probably knew something because our conductor was really um, you know making sure that we know more or less what's going on and what is the context of the of the whole thing so uh, we knew that it has to do with some Tsar and with Russia and with you know some I don't know something happening a few hundred years before I think the the libretto is 16th century I think it's based on the historical events so I, I didn't do any research so I would have to check it but I think it's a uh, 16th century Russia yeah yeah I did do research and Chloe take it away <laughs> yeah it was about uh the Tsar Boris uh, Godunov mm -hmm. and he ruled from 1598 to 1605 so not very long, but it was like the end of, it was like a turbulent time in Russia's history because there was the fall of a whole Tsar family. Dynasty, exactly. And the Dynasty, new, yeah. And then the new one was coming. That's what I know, I guess that's what I know now, but I don't think I knew it at the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, honestly, like I wish I could say that I had known that before we were going to interview you for this, but I did not. I just sure. looked it up in preparation. <laughs> no, but I get this because this is also not one of these like, standard opera pieces that that are being played in opera houses you know so i i understand that i i guess there are many people that that have never heard this music even though they like opera mm. have you played any more of um Zorsky's pieces um no i don't think so i think this is the only one actually yeah. interesting I played pictures at an exhibition, yeah, I think four times really? during my, yeah, for some reason when I was in high school, like everyone programmed it. So I played it in my youth orchestra. Then I played it in all state orchestra. Then I played it in like this Western States honors orchestra festival. And then I think I played it like one other time. Anyway, it was at least three times 
in the span of two or three years of being in high school? <laughs> yeah, I think it's quite a common um, one for like younger people because I played it in like, yeah, the National Youth Orchestra as well. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, I guess I guess because it gives all the instruments their bits. Yeah, and it uses all the instruments so then like all of the you know, more People kids can bored. be involved. Yeah, it's yeah. true. <laughs> but actually I was thinking about that with the with the opera that he I mean, again, like his orchestration for the bit that you sent us as well is really interesting, like his choice of instruments. It's weird, right? Yeah. It's weird. It's kind of, and actually I think I don't know if it's uh, an opera that is considered like well written. I'm not sure about that. But because it is kind of strange and the harmony is strange and uh, all these like you can hear this this uh, this orthodox music influence as well but uh, i think that's what i like it you know because it's like yeah very specific very something very very different than uh, yeah what do you mean by the orthodox music influence because i don't know a lot about that right uh, this is this is just like my intuition but I, I mean i guess it makes sense because so the opera was written in the 19th century and um you know, since it was the time when all these national identities in Europe were kind of being formed, I guess he also got inspired by the by the traditional music and put it in it. But what I mean about um, uh, Russian Orthodox music is the choir music, because in in uh, in Russia or in I don't know in Eastern Europe in Orthodox churches, people only sing, and it's choir singing because it's not only uh, you don't only have one voice; you have a few of them. And the way it sounds, so the way it it is written, or not written, but the way it works harmonically, it's very specific. It's very you can recognize it right away. Interesting. So, um, so I think also already in the prologue you can hear a little bit of that. Here's some early Russian Orthodox singing that Mariana was just talking about. some of the prologue of the Boris Godunov opera where you can hear some of the choir singing chant-like melodies reminiscent of the early Russian polyphonic choral sound. That's a kind of music that I just don't really have any connection to, I don't think. Sure. Yeah, for me, I mean, growing, growing up in Poland, of course, uh, Poland is Catholic, so, the, so the, the church music sounds completely different. But somehow we, you know, because it's geographically and culturally close, we recognize it and we kind of, well, not really know it, but I guess for musicians, it's something that you can, that you can spot on quite easily. But yeah, I will be very happy to, to send you some examples. Thanks, yeah. Yeah, I remember singing one, oh, now I can't remember what it was, but it's a very famous one. Might have been a Rachmaninoff choir piece, but um, that we sang in, like, in the sort of older youth choir when the boys' voices had changed. 
um, yes. so that they could almost get all the low notes. <laughs> um, and some cracking. Yeah, there. a few crackings for tenors. Um, but, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, we sang this piece, and I'll have to go back and find it as well, but um, for us, like in Australia, not having a very strong Russian Orthodox upbringing myself um and and also in our choral traditions because we kind of did either like the English Oxbridge the that kind of college choir repertoire or like contemporary Australian music um and then we tried doing this Rachmaninoff or whatever it was and um our choir conductor got us to subtly take turns breathing so that we didn't ever stop the phrase so it just kept going and going and going and going and I think that's a thing right or like either they all just have really good breath control or they do Mm -hmm. sneaky breaths that just like keep the phrase just like going yes I remember exactly the same thing from from our choir rehearsals but I'm not sure if it was about specifically about this kind of music or in general but but yeah it it makes sense in any case I think it's a it's a specific way of singing of uh yeah, and I mean, I, I love these, these, these Orthodox choirs. It's, it's amazing, especially when they're all guys. If it's a male choir, it sounds awesome. Yeah. I'm going to send you some recordings. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, great. Excited for that. Sure. <laughs> cool. Is there anything else we need to talk about with this piece? Mm, no, just something, you know, some nice memory. And then, yeah, it's been kind of always present in my life since then. Because it's like, mm. yes. Yeah, so um, you haven't actually played it. You've you only sang in it, or uh, I've just uh, I've just sang yeah, yeah. I, I've just sang that and uh, yeah yeah as you said it's not done that often and putting on a whole opera is like just such a big production it's such a big deal to I do I think it. so and also the choir because there's a okay there's children's choir but there's mostly the the, the people's choir so the adults mm-hmm. and I mean also like there were so many people on stage that's what I remember as a kid mm-hmm. it was just like and there were horses coming up on stage at some point so. <laughs> Can real horses that, real horses i don't know why i mean poor horses right but yeah but wow <laughs> yes at least that's how you know that's the way they did it in poznan in the 90s but <laughs> <laughs> those are the days oh my that's goodness. amazing wow what a huge production and yeah. what a thing to be a part of as a child right yeah no it was very powerful yeah amazing yeah. well and then so the next one all right do you have a preference or should we pick one <laughs> You can just pick whatever you want. All right, we're going to go straight to um, Buddy Rich Big Band Machine. Great. Because why not? I would love to know why this um, <laughs> is here and how it works. Um, uh, well, it's not so okay. It's, so I, I had to pick up a few pieces or tunes, which was very difficult, right? So this is this is just one of very many many, many tunes by uh, Buddy Rich Bigman that I love. I mean, I just love the group and I love the Buddy Rich is a drummer, right? And uh, he's considered, uh, I guess, one of the biggest drummers of all times. He was this this prodigy. I think he was playing drums already when he was three years old or something, and you know, performing. And I think when I was in high school, 
not before I was in high school. I was still a pianist because I I actually started as a as a piano player. I somehow found the CD actually I think at my at my parents' place because my dad is a, a jazz drummer as well. Mm-hmm. So drums have always been around, you know, uh, since I basically remember. But yeah, somehow I until some point I was not really interested in that you know I was not interested in jazz I was not interested in, in playing percussion or drums or whatever but at some point I picked up the CD and I played it and I was completely mind blown by the <laughs> by the level of this intensity and virtuosity of course obviously and the, the wildness of the guy drumming I was like this is this is insane you know I heard I was you know listening to lots of music at a time that was kind of similar to this but that was something that was it was just on a completely different level it really struck you yeah. yes it really struck me and so this specific CD um, I think it was probably recorded in the 60s which was like you know the peak of of Buddy Rich's career and uh, and this big man I, I also know now that he was considered very very difficult to work with and he would oh, really? trash all the musicians yeah because you know he was the guy was a genius and he could play extremely fast and just you know also rehearse for i think many many hours and these poor brass players they were just you know they, they needed to rest at some point but he wouldn't let them and you also can hear it often i don't know if in, in this city but you can hear it in the recording that he's kind of trying to to you know to rush them and he's shouting at them and he while still playing all these crazy things whoa yeah i mean now i know all these things but by then i was just uh, i was just really mind blown by the by the intensity of this music and um, so this specific tune machine i mean obviously he's the machine there right like he's the one yeah. uh you know bringing everything together and uh, all this drive of this music and uh, yeah this kind of focus and the fact that every every time i listen to it i kind of it's not only that I like it because it sounds great, but I also kind of feel it in my body, you know, because of this. This, this, I, I guess, yeah, this is what makes me really love the city. Yeah, I totally understand what you mean when you sent it to me. I was like, this is really amazing. But it's intense. It's intense. <laughs> it's really intense. Yeah. And it, you do feel like the the percussion is really carrying and driving it in yes. like some really amazing ways. I mean, percussion always does some like very good, I don't know, driving's kind of the wrong, yeah, kind of the wrong way of saying it, but like it is part of the foundation of the piece always but this in particular in a different way even yeah it's a different level i guess of of this very basic idea that you know it has to be there and brings everybody together and kind of you know be in the back but also follow but mostly also just yeah just bring everything forward but i mean this this specific drummer is just i guess i I would say is the yeah the drive because of course you can approach as you as you just said now you can approach this uh, role of a drummer of a percussionist in a group in a completely different ways but this uh, specific music and the fact that it's so tight I don't know it's just one of these uh, sides to, to, to playing drums that really appeals to me you know yeah this is, this is actually well, I think I think this CD is one of the reasons why I, why I was like maybe actually I could start playing some drums or percussion and uh, see how it feels like you know and before even though it had been part of my life kind of 
you know, it was there around for, for many years. I was never really thinking about it. And at the moment I, I heard this music, I was like, wow, I want to be like Buddy Rich, which of course never happened and it's fine. Yeah. But, <laughs> but I think that was my, uh, that was my initial idea that I, I just want to play drums and I want to play like this. I want to be able to create this kind of feeling for the, for the musicians maybe without shouting and all that, you know. Yeah, maybe less pushing. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, a little bit less pushy, but to create this kind of feeling for the for people that I can play with and, and for the audience. You yeah. Know? yeah, that's so true. I mean, like having an amazing percussionist, like even just like one timpanist in an orchestra or a percussion section that is like that has that spark and that like extra kind of energy yeah. without even noticing you feel like it just brings the whole group together it's magic yes yeah yeah exactly it's magic that's it yeah so did you get your dad to help you learn drum kit no no actually not at all he was <laughs> i mean now he's happy that i became a musician and he's proud but in the beginning when he when he first heard that i wanted to play percussion he was like no don't do this you know it's difficult and you have to carry all these yeah. instruments and nobody will help you and you know he was actually right about this part i mean it's still, still totally worth to do it but he was just worried because i was like 16 and i suddenly decided to stop playing piano and to finish uh, uh, high school playing a different instrument mm, so yeah. uh yeah in the beginning he thought it was a very bad idea and he, since he is um, he never studied music uh, like formally he didn't want to show me anything because he was just like yeah, i'm not going to show you something that might be wrong or whatever you just find your own interesting way. yeah uh, okay so yeah because he has no formal music education but he, still he became a professional musician yeah you don't have to study music to be awesome at it <laughs> yeah also it is so true that with a parent who really knows the ins and outs of what a music career or a specific instrument career is like it is I do find that often they're the ones that like don't do this <laughs> because right. they know the hard bits about it right they don't have it romanticized in their head in any way no, they're like no it sucks to have to <laughs> you know move all of the instruments yes. <laughs> no it sucks to have to do this part of it I don't want that for you yes. you know <laughs> It's funny, yeah. In the case of my dad, it was just like purely practical. You just don't want to carry all these drums around. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was the only reason, really. Wow. How do you feel about carrying all the drums around? You know, I mean, I got used to it. It's as I said, it's, it's worth it. You know, if it if it means that I'm going to play them later in the concert, it's fine. <laughs> so, and also there are lots of projects that I don't have to bring instruments myself because they are organized by somebody else, or I just bring a few small things. So, I mean, there's really. There are all kinds of possibilities. So it's not like I'm every day carrying a drum around the city. No, it's not like this. <laughs> like those one-person bands with the drum, like, strapped to their back and then they're, like, doing the things as they walk. And... No, it's not you. Okay. How, many bi- <laughs> yeah, how many drums can you bike with? <laughs> uh, actually, you know, it's, it's funny. You know, at some point we had this Polish folk group here in The Hague at the time we were studying a few years ago. And uh, so I had my bike and I had to sometimes bring instruments around because we didn't have a car. So I think I used to, yeah, I got this, you know, the, you can get this special like stand that you put in on the front wheel of the bike, this kind yeah. of, yeah, this kind of seat thing. So I would have a cajon there. It's this kind of, yes, yeah, this kind of wooden box that has uh, some strings attached inside. So it, buzz, it buzzes when you, when you hit it. So I had a cajon there and uh, some, a few drums on my back. And another, I think another one in a bag 
on the back wheel of my bike or something. I, yeah, don't, I don't know, but I remember actually took a picture at some point and you know, it was doable. So yeah, if you are motivated by the idea of having to play a concert and then bringing some instruments, you just go for it and you find a way, especially if you're 20 something and you have no yeah. choice. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Like living in the Netherlands and you don't have a car, you don't really know anybody close to you who has a car. And so then you just figure out how to bike with all. You the just things. manage, and it's fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. Alrighty. Next. <laughs> Moving on. All right. Our transitions are not great on this one. I mean, also there's no connection between the music, so it's fine. You know, it's not your fault. It's my fault. And that naturally brings us. To... <laughs> well, actually. This kind of does relate potentially to Mojda and um, Danielson and Fresco. Oh, yeah. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, introduce that for us maybe, please. Can you first tell us how to say Leszek's last name? Because I, we are struggling with this always. No, perfect. It's Mojda. <gasps> yes. Yeah. Leszek Mojda. I mean, it's, it's probably the, the worst Polish name, name to, to pronounce for foreigners. So you're doing a great job, Mojda. Yes. Phew. Moisture. Okay. Because, you know, I actually have never heard him say it correctly. Like, he yeah. makes a joke of it. Oh, yeah. right. I can imagine. Yeah, he's always like, hello. And then the audience is like, oh, ha, 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 we love you. Yay. <laughs> and we're like, no, we still don't know how to say your name. <laughs> it's not done yet. It's not perfect. Okay, now you can introduce this piece. We're ready. So yeah, it kind of relates to what we talked before uh, a little bit. I don't know if that's what you meant, Emma, but yeah. uh, so it's, an, uh, it's a CD recorded by a trio, by three musicians, uh, and two of them have jazz background. So that's Leszek Moszczak, the, the pianist, and Lars Danielson, who was a um, double bass player as well as a cellist, actually. I didn't realize he was a cellist, yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, I I found him recently, to be honest. But yeah, so he he's a he's a cellist as well. And then there's uh, Zohar Fresco, who is um, an Israeli percussionist. And this is something that uh, that brings a completely different quality because if you think of a uh, like the standard gesture, so you have a piano and double bass and drums, right? So, so a drum set, so this kind of body rich thing. And then here suddenly the percussionist playing a completely different set of instruments. Uh, which are all these frame drums, uh, Middle, Middle Eastern or actually North African frame drums. So when I first heard this, this CD, I was I was still in high school, and I was uh, I think I was just listening a lot to to Leszek Mosz at that time because he was he was very popular in, in Poland at that time. He recorded a few solo CDs that were great, and so at some point I guess I just go I go to the shop and I and I saw the CD and I and I bought it, and. Uh, and I listened, and I was like, "Wait, what is this that the, the the percussionist is doing? Like, what? Wh- which instruments? Why? Why? <laughs> you know, because your brain is just like exploding." 
Yeah, exactly, because I knew Leszek and okay, piano fine and double bass, sure, you know, this this is something that I that I could that I could understand. But then the, the instruments and you know, since I just had the CD and there were no pictures or whatsoever of uh, uh, no description of what he was playing, I could only imagine. And I really at that time I had no idea about even about uh, the existence of all these instruments of all these frame drums and and by frame drums I mean. Uh, these very very simple drums which consist of a frame mm-hmm. so like a you know um, round frame and a skin stretch on it so just this very like a tambourine for example is a frame drum with some metal jingles so uh, yeah at the time i would just listen to the cd and i would love it but i would have no idea what it was um the percussion part and only years later, when I when I came here and I started studying at the at the conservatory, and I met uh, my future husband, actually, who's also Israeli, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we do know that, yeah. <laughs> and we talked about you know different music that we knew from from each other countries, and I was like, yeah, you know, there's this guy Zohar Fix, who's like, yeah, sure, Zohar, like everybody knows him, right? The the percussionist, the percussion virtuoso in in Israel, so. It's actually funny because yeah, at some point I also got to study these frame drums, and uh, then of course I went to Israel and I had a few lessons, and I also ended up taking masterclass of Zohar Fresco. <gasps> the dream. Yeah, exactly. It was the dream. How was he as a teacher? <sighs> Amazing. Amazing because he uh, he is this kind of very very generous musician who shares everything he he knows which is not obvious if you know what i mean like he he really but first of all it's also interesting because he learned i think everything he knows about drums he he just studied and he learned by himself but then he developed his own kind of uh, method of playing that has to do also with language he also sings so the way he teaches it's also through it's a little bit through the language and it's well, it's, it's very complex in general, but at the same time, he's this kind of very, very deep, very humble, uh, super nice guy, you know? Yeah, he is so, super nice. Yes. So yeah. this, this, this masterclass we did was very inspiring because we were, uh, it was, I think, about five days of drumming constantly. And, uh, but it, it was also very inspiring, like on the, on the personal level, you know, because we, we would play and he would also talk and he would tell us some stories. And it was just, you know, it would all come together as this kind of like very, yeah, I don't know, very like valuable lesson about music and life and everything connected. Mariana sent us a recording of Zohar Fresco playing frame drums in a traditional Arabic trio, which, as you can hear, is a completely different style of drumming from a standard jazz trio. Zohar playing frame drum in the jazz trio with Leszek Moldzger and Lars Danielson. You can hear how it creates a completely different sound for the whole group. And quick side note, I'm about to talk about that trio. I didn't clarify what I meant is this one that you're about to hear.
you know, it's interesting because we last year recorded an album with um, Holland Baroque and that trio. Right. And it was, yeah, it was amazing. It was amazing working with them. It's amazing seeing the things that they can create as that, as that group together. All three of them wrote some of the pieces that are on that album. Right. And um, I found it really interesting to see to hear the different musical languages of each of them. Right. Because they, you know, they wrote it for a Baroque orchestra with that trio. Oh, so it was written specifically for, for Holland Baroque. Yeah, so it was written specifically for us with mm-hmm. them. And so that was really interesting to see. And I thought, like, the piece that... I think we only recorded one piece by Zohar. And it was beautiful. It was beautiful and, like, really interesting and cool. And it was cool for me to be like, wow, his melodic... Uh, language is also just as great as his yes because as a percussionist it's not that's not always true right yeah that's yeah that's sadly it's you're right <laughs> it's not uh, it's not so obvious but i think in his case because he sings and also there is something very very uh ancient about drums and percussion because in the in the ancient times so like really ancient times i think these kind of drums so the frame drums used to be played by uh, women who are in the house, like, you know, doing all kinds of things that women used to do in the house where, where men were away. And yeah. then they would also gather at some point and sing a little bit and take a drum and just accompany themselves. So this is the or- origin of, of this uh, of the drum, of the frame drum in general. And it's still actually very present in uh, in different places. If you if you look, for example, I don't know, in uh, Portuguese traditional music, um, there's this square frame drum called aduf. In the region of Portugal, they still um, women still play this traditional music uh, when they sing, and they accompany themselves with this with this drum. Wow, cool! So actually, this is how it all started, you know. And this is one of the, the simplest drums that you can that you can think of that then evolved into all kinds of different instruments, of course. So this connection was there somehow uh, originally, and it was that's the interesting thing now. I think if you think about it, that it was the women who, who used to play the drum. Not the men. Yeah, girl. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's true that, you know, I feel like this, because I also studied classical percussion, that this kind of connection gets lost very easily also because of the amount of instruments that we have to study and uh, because of the different approach, different techniques that you have to learn that you kind of lose the connection with your own body a little bit in, in a way because, of course, like we, we use uh, our hands to play in sticks that we hold in hands. So, so, so that is, this is still there. But, um, yeah, but actually I know very few percussionists who have this kind of, as, as Chloe said, this kind of melodic, like intuition or melodic uh, approach to drums, uh, you know, involved. This is not very common. And, and Zohar is a good example of this kind of percussionist because the, the guy we talked about before, Buddy Rich, is a completely different story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's a rhythm, 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 groove, and drive, drive, drive. And and I, I think this is also what I like about the CD of, of uh, Leszek Morz, Zohar Fresco, and Lars Danielson, that it's um, because it's a fusion project, because they have all, all they come from these completely different backgrounds. The pianist is Polish, the, the double bassist is Swedish, and the percussionist is Israeli. Uh, but and in general, I, I think it's personally, I think it's very difficult to create a fusion or like a crossover project that would be convincing, that would be uh, tasteful, yep. you know, and 
especially if you have a trio, which is a very challenging setup, I think. If you have three individuals that play on their instruments on such high level, it's just very easy to, you know, to kind of take over and not to not to listen to the other one. And with these guys and this specific CD, I think what I love is the, the space that they give to each other. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you need to be very wise, like also musically, just to kind of let go and to let the other person just, you know, bring whatever he or she wants to bring at, the, at this point. So I think also the, uh, the recording I send you uh, is a good example of that because it's, there's a very simple, minimal kind of piece and uh, where actually when the percussionist Zohar is playing this, this very, very simple part and just in the very end, he takes a solo that gives you an idea of all the possibilities that this, <laughs> this guy has, but he does it in such a tasteful way that it just, you know what I mean? That it's yeah. very much in balance with everything else that is happening. And I, re- I really love this. Yeah, it's not like pushing each other aside to be like, okay, no. so now it's this thing. I'm going to do my stuff. Yeah, exactly. It's very like empathic in a way. And also, I don't know, for me, I think music was, it's always been this kind of social thing to do because, you know, I used to be a pianist and I thought it was just so boring to play, you know, all these long pieces by myself in the practice room. And the, the, at the moment I started playing percussion, I, I was very happy because I could finally just play with people. So this is a little bit about this as well, I think, that, that you really, I mean, as much as you can bring your own personality and your musical ideas, I mean, it's always great. But if you can also, especially if you collaborate in such a small setting, if you can give, give space to the others, this can create something very, very special if you, if you get the right balance, I think. Yeah. And this is a great example for this. Yeah. Yes. Oh, I'm so glad you brought this. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Me too. It was really nice to yeah hear it again. And maybe it's worth mentioning as well that all these frame dress we are talking about now, it's uh, it's hand percussion, meaning that you that you play it with your fingers, with your hands, because all the other drums, like a drum set, is something that you play with sticks. So I think this also gives you, I mean, as a, I can just tell you as a musician, as a percussionist, that it gives you a different connection with the instrument. Mm. Especially if you are if you study classical percussion like me, and you are always used to hold sticks, you know, wherever you go. Whatever instrument that is, no matter if it's a marimba or it's a triangle, you always hold something. There's something between you and the instrument. And with frame drums, suddenly you get something like just very close to your body and uh, something that you just touch with your hands. And uh, yeah, the feeling of it and uh, the outcome of it is just completely different. Yeah, for sure. Mm. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, right? Yeah, and like, especially because your know, hands are so versatile, like you could use just one finger to like tap and then you can use the whole palm of your hand or you can yeah so many possibilities <laughs> look at you knowing things oh, I'm, I mean, look. <laughs> no but it's not funny because actually it's true that until you don't don't try it you don't even think about this kind of stuff you yeah. know no it's true and it's not so obvious because because i know lots of percussionists that i i don't know people i studied with and they are not interested in in this kind of music which is completely fine because they just want to play in orchestras and they want to play with their sticks and you know snare drums and timpani and just want their sticks (laughs) (laughs) it's it's just a completely different thing to do and i'm always for the for the you know variety and for this you know as many possibilities as possible I, i i got interested in it but yeah you know, it's just like one of the things out there that you can do as a percussionist. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I actually wonder what the history of um, Celtic drums is like in relation to this sort of North African and mm-hmm. then Middle Eastern frame drums because, I mean, the baron for Celtic bands 
is a frame drum with skin, but then you have a tiny little stick that's like a pencil. Yes. And you hold it and then because my my dad played that in, in an Irish band like oh, while really? I was growing up. Cute. Um, and so <laughs> this is why I'm so well-versed in all of the technical things. <laughs> yeah, now I understand. <laughs> no, but actually, I mean, I hadn't thought about this, but like it's the same setup except that the Irish just got a stick. <laughs> Yes, in the end, and and still use that on the frame drum, whereas you know in the Turkish and sort of Middle Eastern or North African, it's still with hands. But yeah, I wonder if I mean I guess we're all connected somehow from the beginning. But um, yeah, it would be interesting to kind of learn that story of how those drums came yeah, about. Yeah, that's but, interesting. Yes. Do you know Mariana? I I think I kind of know. I have an yeah. idea about how it uh, how it was. So uh, I traced this a little bit. And well, it it all came to Europe with the with the Arabs, who arrived, you know, in the the Iberian Peninsula in the in the early medieval times. So they brought that's what they that's what they claim that they brought the the frame drum to to Europe. So that's why in Spain, still, still uh, a tambourine, for example, or these these uh, frame drums that I told you about, uh, the ones that they still play in Portugal are very very popular, you know, but. Interesting. Uh, the interesting thing is that it's uh, mostly popular in the north of uh, Spain. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's still present in the traditional music. That's what I mean. So, like, if you go there and you go to a village, you will always get a lady who can who has a drum and is, can sing a few songs with the drum. You know, so the way it used to it used to be done. So the thing is that yeah, so the Arabs go to Spain and they they conquer this slowly step by step, but they never exactly got to the north um, of the peninsula. But once they started leaving, they wanted to make sure that all the culture is completely gone. So when this happened, it happened almost in all of Spain and Portugal, but the north of the country because the Arabs no, never really got there; they were never really present there. You know, so there wasn't a, the drum somehow made it up there, but they the backlash of like trying to get rid of it, get rid of that culture exactly didn't happen. Yeah, right. In a way, I think. And then, um, well, I lived in the north of Spain for uh, half a year. Uh, I did a student exchange there, and uh, that was in Asturias, which is yeah one of the northern regions of Spain. And you know, funny because when I was when I was going there, I had this idea of you know, flamenco and, you know, the typical yeah. Spanish thing happening. But the truth is that the, the culture there in the north is completely different. It's a little bit closer to the Celtic thing in a way. Uh, also the, the, the traditional music, because, I mean, first of all, because it's very close to, to England already. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, it has somehow it has very little to do with, with everything else that is happening in the south of the peninsula, which had, had much more of this Moorish, the Arabic influence. So then I guess, I guess maybe that could be the story of the of the Irish drum that Emma is talking about. That if it if it got even more up north, and then at some point, you know, the thing is that uh, frame drums are mostly played in sunny countries with high temperatures. You know, because oh. the because if you have a natural skin, and uh, the temperature goes high, it um, it shrinks. So then the pitch goes higher. It sounds higher. And uh, if the temperature goes low, the drum goes lower as well, so that the pitch goes lower. In general, if you look, for example, also in Europe, in Northern Europe, people don't play frame drums uh, with their hands because uh, it doesn't make sense. Because the pitch, you cannot keep the drum in, in, a, in a good condition. It's stable. Uh... Yeah, it's, it's not stable enough. So you need a stick. 
uh, you oh need God. some yeah you need some ropes like ropes that you have in a field drum for example to tune it a little bit so to make it a little bit higher so the pitch stays it's stable and you can play it with your sticks right so maybe this could because be it's colder and humider and darker and <laughs> <laughs> rainier and no but oh my god my mind is blown that makes so much sense. yeah wow i th- th- this is just like a, if you're asking me right now this this would be my idea about how it may be you know makes total sense yeah yeah oh, you know what that i'm gonna believe we'll it. go with yeah, that yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's better than anything either one of us was going to come up with so cool well that was great um true to the next <laughs> Yay, I'm getting to the last piece. Yay. Oh, I'm also really excited for this piece as well. Have you ever played any music by Steve Reich? No, but I've listened to a lot of it for many, many years on repeat, which is <laughs> fitting considering it's very repetitive music. <laughs> it is, yes. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love it. And, I, and, and I'm really happy because I also got to play some pieces myself and, uh, and it's, yeah, it's great. Oh, awesome. So you've brought in? I've brought in music by 18 musicians by Steve Reich. And it's a um, it's a piece written in, I think uh, in the seventies. This is the time when he wrote a few of these really cool pieces, also drumming and uh, I think music for mallets, voices, and organ, and uh, six pianos, which became six marimbas later. Also really fun. And it's a piece that I uh, I heard for the first time also in very weird circumstances because I was in. Um, Germany, attending this marimba masterclass, and uh, not knowing much about, you know, any 20th century music, actually, now that I think about it, you know, I was, <laughs> I think I was probably 20 at the time, and I just started to play percussion a few years before, so everything was new to me, and then uh, one of the activities was also attending a rehearsal of a group playing a piece by some composer, you know, so, so we went there, and it turned out that the, the, the piece was uh, music for 18 musicians and the group was Ensemble Modern, which is one of the one of the best contemporary music groups, actually, I think, in, probably in, the, in Europe, in the world. And that the composer, Steve Reich, was there attending and playing, <laughs> playing <gasps> the piano part. Can you imagine? Oh, but, my God. But I have to say, I think at the time, I really didn't know, I mean, I probably had a vague idea about who Steve Reich was and that's it I didn't know any of his music it's a bit embarrassing but I have to say it so you can imagine the the impact this music had on me when I heard it live because the, the thing is that if you rehearse this piece uh, uh, music for 18 musicians which is about an hour long the, the way to rehearse it is just to you know to run it you play it from the beginning to the end so this is what happened we just we just went there we, we sat um and they they just played it. I think Steve Ray was playing uh, one of the piano parts, and I was I was completely mind blown. I mean, can you imagine? 
also hearing hearing this hearing this music for the first time without any preparation and also in this you know at such high level because this is again this is one of the best ensembles that would play this music ever and then the composer is there and he's playing one of the parts it was uh yeah it was a very like spiritual experience actually and also there is something about this music that that I really love. I mean, of course, just the, the simplicity of it and the, the idea that it's genius. But um, when, you, when you perform it, you have to kind of get into the state of... So, so the thing is that you, uh, that you get on stage and you play a pattern of a few notes, that's something very, very simple, that repeats itself for like 20 minutes, right? And this is, and th- and this is it. This is what you have to do. Um, so, for example, in a piece like drumming that you, so you're already on stage waiting for your moment and then you have to join right away, you have to play the notes and you have to stay there. And, and this is the thing, you have to kind of be focused on what you are doing so, so you can't let your mind slip anywhere else. But you, cannot, you also have to relax in order to, you know, to fit something that has been there already for some time before because you are joining the group of musicians that have been playing already for, I don't know, half an hour or 50 minutes before you came in. So it's this kind of really, yeah, weird state of, on one hand, you have to kind of let go and on the other hand, you have to be really focused on what you are doing. I think it's very special when you perform this music. I actually like it. I like more performing it than listening to it, I think. Because I know the state and I can and I can relate to it, but also there is something very physical about it. You know, this repetitive movement and the fact that everybody is moving in the same way, and you have like I don't know, at least usually at least ten people on stage, and you are close close to each other because sometimes you have I don't know four people playing one marimba, and it's so you are really very really close to each other. You can physically like almost feel the other the other people doing the same thing as you are doing. There is something super like physical and even I don't know tribal about it that is awesome and i I didn't experience it playing any other thing uh, in my life and this this music is very very special in this sense yeah it's like the ultimate state of flow that you have to get into exactly and collectively yes get into that collective flow yeah that that is amazing and also i haven't thought about the actual physical setup of how you would make this music because i've only listened to it as like recordings Mm. because you know, I'm a total nerd. I would listen to Steve Reich while I was studying or like getting ready in the mornings in like high school and undergrad. Sounds great for me. I'm a cool kid. Um, yeah. <laughs> I just feel like, yes, good morning, Steve Reich. Um, but I think, yeah, like, so then it was just always on in the background. But um, yeah, I've never seen any of his music live, I don't think. Oh, except I have, I mean, I've done clapping music. That's one right. thing I have performed of his. Yes. Oh, that's, that's nice. It's just very short, you know? Yeah. music for the musicians and the other ones they are they are just really long so it's it's a really it's, i mean if you if you go for it you go for it you have to you know you have to be there and you it's, it's really kind of a journey that you embark on like from the beginning from the first note till the very end and it's uh yeah it's it's a kind of 
kind of the process that you are witnessing and it's, it's super super special also if you if you listen to the to the music not only if you play it i guess Yeah, even listening, you get into this kind of state of flow, which I guess that's why, yeah, it was easier to listen to it studying. You've got something there that's keeping you going, but it's not its not like Mozart or an orchestral piece where then my ear naturally goes to analysing the music, which is annoying when you're tr- trying not to analyse the music. Yeah, it's not distracting. Yeah, it's yeah, it's not distracting. Yeah. No, it's a completely different state of mind for performance and for, for the audience, I think, that you have to get to, to really appreciate this music, to really also be to be in it because yeah i feel like it's kind of easy to to slip away to, to yeah. i don't know how to explain this this is really uh no it makes sense it makes sense i mean it is it's a very meditative state yes yeah very zen in a way yeah, but again something so it's it sounds very like nice and spiritual but it's also very tribal and like yeah physical at the same time so yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense because it's you are having to do this thing and do the physical aspect of it over and over and in community with other people doing that too. And if one person stops doing that the same way, then it does change the whole everything. And actually, yeah, obviously because I played some pieces and, you know, in different settings, it happens sometimes that you, you are performing live and, you know, somebody just like, slips away and you can feel it right away i mean yeah hopefully not people who are listening to us but i mean there, there, there's something about it that just like no suddenly it's just not falls apart yes yeah. yes even if it's tiny tiny difference you know yeah so when have you performed it how many times have you performed it so actually i've never performed music for 18 musicians and i'm dying to do it because <laughs> this is like one of the best pieces uh I think it's a dream piece for a percussionist who, who wants to play chamber music. So if there's anybody listening out there <laughs> who's maybe... You're putting together a band. Please. <laughs> I, I, played, I played all these other pieces from, from the same period, which is yeah, drumming. And um, I did six marimbas and music for mallets, voices and organ. Yeah, we even did it once a few years ago. There's this electronic music festival in Amsterdam called Deckmantel, and Steve Reich came to to one of the rehearsals. He also was cool. there at the performance, so it was also really nice to just to work with him a little bit. And uh, yeah, but that was one of the like specific cool performances because yeah, usually we perform this kind of music for uh, for classical music audience, but that was uh, an electronic music festival so <laughs> people went there just you know with beers and whatever they were <laughs> they were they were in a completely different state of mind and the way they experienced this music and the energy that they gave to, to, to us to the performance was amazing it was a completely different experience yeah it's really cool wow. so it's i guess it's, it's the kind of music this this minimal music of steve Ray that that can have many different um outcomes depending on the context that you put it in it's, yeah. it's, it's very universal but it's also it's very sophisticated at the same time so you can you can i think you can appreciate it if you don't know anything about the music but if you are a musician and you and you know you can appreciate it just even more 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I can't remember. I think, yeah, when I was in undergrad as well, um, one of our theory teachers, we did like, you know, a stint on minimalist music and we were talking about the fact that it actually is one of the hardest things to actually compose something in a minimalist style because you have to get that tiny bit of the the whole like the whole cell that that you know half an hour of music is going to be based on that has to be so perfect because you're going to be listening to it in like slightly varied minute forms or it'll get you know changed a little bit but it'll kind of be the base for a huge amount of time right and so if you don't get that right and then if you don't manipulate it in the right way then you're just going to lose your audience and so it is kind of one of the hardest things to do um kind of getting that perfection in such a small I don't know concentrated cell of music yeah just within a few notes in this specific piece in music writing musicians there's just this section of I don't know 10 or 11 chords and that's what it is it is introduced in the in the in the first movement which is called pulses and then you have different sections when these chords are kind of worked on you know and that's it that's the whole piece so the idea is very very simple and that what's happening is that you have different instruments that are kind of highlighting different uh, different notes of the chords depending on the section that's what uh, where the magic happens you know yeah. yeah, it functions on many different levels yes, in exactly. so many different ways. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think, you guys, this is such a great place to wrap it up. Mariana, we have one final question that we ask at the end of all of our episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, so is there a piece from another instrument's repertoire that you are jealous of? piece that I'm jealous of? Hmm. Well, that's a difficult question because I guess... I- Again, I will have to, you know, tell you about at least a few pieces. So it just always, you know, it's always very hard to, to choose one thing. Like if even if you would ask me about, I know, my the book that I love or a movie or like a piece of art or something, it's impossible because there are so many things on it. You know what? Uh, we don't have to take this as like the one. It's like it just something that you, it occurs to you now today. Mm-hmm. Yes, sure. So if you ask me today... Uh, right now i would say uh, some french baroque piece i don't know maybe lully or maybe marais and uh, some viola parts that i would love to play because all these middle voices are doing such cool things there you know Mm. this is this is something i think i would i've never played any string instrument i think that my love for for french baroque music and the middle parts it's something that i'm i'm really jealous of and this is something i would really love to do if i could uh, if i could play one of these instruments you know Nice. Great answer. Yeah. We approve. Great <laughs> well, um, oh yes. How can people support you, get in touch, uh, find your stuff? I have you. a website that is not updated, but uh, I can, yeah, I should update it anyway. So I can, <laughs> I can pass, uh, pass it on, you know, Instagram, great. Facebook, whatever, social media. Yeah. Great. great. Woo. Mariana, thank you so much for joining thanks. us. No, thanks. And I'm so glad that it, it's, it's, it's worked. Thanks a lot. so much for tuning in to Outside the Music Box. We hope you enjoyed our chat with Mariana Soroka. If so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and tell all your friends about it. It's time for some new reviews and ratings, so if you haven't done this already, we'd really appreciate it. We'd also love to hear from you. If you have any questions or want to share music that you love, you can write to us at concerts.musicbox at gmail.com 
or on Facebook and Instagram at Music Box Concerts and Twitter at Outside Music Box. Write in with comments or questions that you have and we'll get back to you. Big shout out to Joanna Neuschatz for her help with editing and a reminder to donate via our PayPal, which is paypal.me slash musicboxconcerts. It's super easy to donate and these donations help the podcast run in lieu of advertising. In the show notes, we've included links to three Spotify playlists, one specifically for the pieces in this episode and the others for all the pieces we've talked about on this podcast so far. However, we really encourage you to purchase music in order to support the artists. The best way to support Mariana is by going to marianasoroka.com or finding her on Instagram, which we've also linked in the show notes. See you next time outside the music box. Music box.